Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If I learned one thing in the last year, it's that falling into debt can happen to anyone. Luckily, I heard about the ISI, the Insolvency Service of Ireland. Their professional advisors can help you restructure or even write off your debt. The first thing they said to me was, every debt problem has a solution. I can still feel the relief. So if you're worried, visit their website backontrack.ie or free text get help to 50015. The ISI, together, will get you back on track. Well, the Rugby Life interviews are coming thick and fast, listeners. I'm Lee, as you know. Uh, Josh is not here today. It's just me. You can get in touch with me at Blood and Mud if you want to. But who is here today, your guest in this episode, is Chris Corcoran. Hello, Chris. Hey, Lee. How's it going? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Oh, my pleasure, mate. Thanks for inviting me on. It's uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Good one. Uh, so we're going to talk to you a bit about your life. Well, let's talk about you. You were born and raised in South Wales. You... Can I just say before before we kick off? Yeah. How how much fun it is to be uh, talking about rugby with someone who sounds eighty seven percent like Brian Moore. Do I? <laughs> I've never thought I've I've never had that before. He's from Yorkshire. Oh, I'm from Lancashire. I could get really upset about that, but I'll take it for what it's intended. We're both northern. Oh, well, that was yeah. that was one of my questions: was whether you kind of grew up in the same neck of the woods. But that's a real massive. We grew up in from my, we we from grew my up in the north. Yeah, we're, we're, we're oh, clearly so we're, we're clearly all the same. But yeah, it's a... <laughs> <laughs> just no. then the American Canadian thing. Oh God, I'm sorry. No, but I moved away from Lancashire when I was about twelve, so my accent has tailed off a bit. So I do actually have I do sound just kind of generically northern now, I suppose. So. Do you know that 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 rivalry as well? When I lived in uh, Swansea, uh, I lived in a student house when I was in Swansea Uni, and t- I, two of the friends I lived with—one was from Yorkshire, and one was from Lancashire—and uh, the guy from Yorkshire played hooker for the firsts, hmm. and the guy from Lancashire was uh, a footballer, and he, he was like uh, six foot six, and just kind of—he didn't—he wouldn't allow us to have a heating on type guy <laughs> and so it was like you know oh it's just it's just bracing and it'd be like minus three and there'd be like frost on the inside of the windows and we, we'd sit and we'd watch telly and apropos of nothing like with, with, without referring to it they would sit and just intermittently punch each other out of the rivalry it's, it's, of it's being... deep in the genes you it don't is. know why you want to do it you just have to do it well, clearly, they, and it, we would just sit there, you know, so me and my other mate from Cardiff would be, like, drinking tea and eating biscuits, and they'd just be there kind of, like, reliving the War of the Roses. <laughs> Which we won, i just like to yeah. point out. So, uh, um, yeah, so you were born and raised in South Wales, Chris. You, you yeah. managed to survive into adulthood and taught history yeah. at Barry Comprehensive School, and I read somewhere at a school in Hillingdon in West London. 
Yeah, that's right. I did. Yeah. I was ahead of history there. Yeah, I know Hillingdon quite well because my mother-in-law taught in a school in Hillingdon. Did uh, she? She did, yeah. But it's not about me or her. So uh, uh. Um, you, ev- <laughs> you eventually felt the call to comedy and broadcasting and your career has included, but not exclusively limited to this, rave reviews on your Edinburgh debut, lots of other stand-up stuff, TV work, including Max Boyce's World Cup journey, comedy Six Nations rugby stuff on B- on the BBC, the interviewing people for the entertainment show B, Cole stories and other things. You're also and you're now mostly found on Radio Wales hosting your own show and helping out Rod Gilbert. Is that is that about the size of it now? Yeah, that that's about the size of it. I haven't quite got my own show. That would be uh, slightly disingenuous. I couldn't quite claim oh, that, that my my own I thought show. You did some but, Saturday um, evening shows and stuff. Oh no, that is true. I did do my own show for a chunk of time. That that is that is fair. I was just trying to be brutally honest and uh, <laughs> slight slightly modest. Um no, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, you did your, uh, got you dug up some stuff from the past there. Um, yeah, that's it. That that's 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 true. Yeah, I'm currently kind of script writing. I'm, I'm sort of script writing at the moment, which is it's a bit of a varied bag. So yeah. So you're here to talk about rugby in your life and stuff like that. But yeah, love uh, to. This is being recorded the week after Wales's Grand Slam win. Um, oh yeah. Uh, we were actually going to do this last week, weren't we? But I said, well, shall we wait? <laughs> yeah. And maybe because otherwise we'll be trying to make it. Although I did quite like the idea of doing, you know, like that. Um, Netflix Bandersnatch thing. Have you seen What's that? What's that? It's no, a Black Mirror thing. It it's Black Mirror, but it's a TV show based on, you know, remember those those books we used to get when we were kids where it said, if you want to go into room A, turn to page 27. Oh, yeah, it, it was, yeah. It's a, it's a TV show on Netflix, which is based okay. on, on that called yeah. Bandersnatch. I'll be honest, it was quite possibly the most tedious thing I've ever watched. Oh, it, it? It, it never seemed to fucking end. But, it um, had great reviews. I don't, well, it's, maybe it's just me. But yeah, it's because it's constantly going. Then you keep coming back to where you started. You're like, this has right. been going on for about three fucking hours now. But, um, <laughs> and I'm not even that interested. But the um, but I did quite like the idea of we could have done a kind of Bandersnatch thing and go, right now, Chris, imagine that you've not won. If we recorded <laughs> it last week. You know, do the bit now about you being fed up. Oh, no, you've won now. Be happy. And I could have... We could have given. Have, that, I could have given you options. We yeah, could have given yeah. options. Yeah, we could have had a sort of an, an A record and a B record, but we didn't. So, um, so you're quite happy then, I imagine, after the weekend. Oh yeah, I, I, I mean, what a weekend! That that the Wales result was phenomenal, and I didn't see that coming. I did think we were going to win because of Alwyn Jones. Really, he'd he'd sort of. I mean, you know, he's obviously been on this leadership curve for some time, and I think the Lions. Last time out, when um, uh, when he he took off from from Sam Warburton mm. was a, a a big step up, and then he's been Wales captain for a chunk of time. But it was kind of like everyone is, is in awe of Alamin Jones, but then all of a sudden he kind of stepped into the category of Martin Johnson, Richie yeah, McCall, yeah. John Eels, and kind of transcended. He's become one for the, on the ages, pitch. hasn't he? He's become he really has, not just one yeah. of the best players that's of the decade we've been watching. He's become one of the best players of any decade now. Yes, and and that's that's happened sort of all of a sudden. If you see what I mean, like it's he's he suddenly reached that level. So going into the game, I was so confident that he was leading the team so well, and they were play, and they've obviously got such a great culture. Um, and then he's obviously playing so well with people like Justin Tipperick in, in defence, and their defensive system is so strong. I did think we were going to win. I did think it was going to be close-ish, and I thought Ireland might have got a bit of form back. But to see Wales just destroy them, 
And they did destroy them absolutely everywhere. Yeah. Uh, absolutely everywhere. As an outsider looking in, I live in Wales, but as an outsider looking in, um, it was it was from five minutes in, not really ever in doubt, really. <laughs> it was weird, wasn't it? Because Ireland just a... couldn't put anything together at all. They couldn't. It was the most complete Welsh performance I think I've ever seen. And I was, uh, you know, I've seldom been that confident, as you say, within a within about, I don't know, 10, ten minutes or whatever, to think, hang on a minute, this is, I can't see how Ireland get back into this. Mm. It was absolutely phenomenal. T- tipped off by that lovely clip that's been going on Twitter of Jonathan Davis coming up to Alwyn Jones at the end of the game and it being clear from his um, mm. reading his lips that he says, thank you, mate, I love you. And it's done the round. hadn't even had a drink. Wales. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> That's a proper I mean, 11 just... o'clock at night after the game, job, in <laughs> yeah. my experience. Yeah, well, quite. But, I mean, I think that's... I fucking so... love playing with you, mate. I fucking love you. Yeah, I stuff. love you. But that's normally five you. hours hence of when it happened, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I love you. It's my round. <laughs> um, but that was... It was truly fantastic, yeah. And, and it really... Um, it really suggested that they have got something. They are peaking. They are peaking at the right time going into the World Cup. And um, it is, it's really exciting because I think that they've got that balance now of in really brilliant coaching team. The defence, Sean Edwards, is clearly done an unbelievable job. Um, so the coaching team is on its highest point. You got the, the captain is at the peak of his powers, and the team is playing for each other with that kind of love that they kind of got in the group for each other, um, and they've got a mixture of young players and experienced players, and it blows my mind to think that we're second in the world, and that we shouldn't be shy of saying, do you know, I think Wales have got a really good chance to win the World Cup because I think we do. Oh, now you fucked it. The only way is down. <laughs> No, well, I see, the, the normal Welsh thing to do would be to go all in sort of insular and go, oh, boys, don't talk about it. Oh, <laughs> God, if you say it out loud, you're going to jinx it. But, you know, bollocks. It's like having Josh really... back on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really think that, um, uh, and I think it's significant that Gatland has made a point of saying, yeah, well, I think we're gonna, we've got a good chance of winning this, that I think we're going to win it. Because there comes a point where you've just got to be confident in what you got. Um, and I also think, though, that it falls at the right time in terms of the other teams in the world because Australia and South Africa aren't what they were. And yeah, okay, they'll come back and they'll peak a bit for the World Cup, no doubt, but they're not the forces they were. Ireland seems to have just gone a little bit old and maybe they're not quite the force they were. God only knows what's going on with England. One minute they look like they are. I mean, when they beat... When they beat Ireland, I was texting my English mates going, that's it. That is that is a Grand Slam winning team. When you've got mm. Tuolangi and Slade suddenly playing together and they are playing so dominantly with all the strike runners that they've got, that is a World Cup winning team. And then to, to flip of a coin, play one way in one half and then another way in another half, like they did against Wales and then Scotland... I, and then for Eddie Jones to start blaming everybody else, including England's performance at the last World Cup, in which hardly any of the players are playing, I don't know what's going on with England. So, I mean, they've got the potential to win the World Cup, but they're all over the place. Um, and so you've got that consistency with Wales. So you just think, well, hang on a minute. New Zealand are clearly the team to beat. 
but are they not even quite what they were like last couple of times out? So there just feels like a real opportunity. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I remember going into 2003, as I having watched England for those past five years, up to that, and thinking, I remember I was playing rugby in Cardiff at the time, and I remember somebody saying to me, do you think you're going to win it? And I said, I think, I, I'm going to put it confidently we're going to get to the final. Yeah. And then a one-off game, you never know. But what I can say is that we've got enough, and we should have enough to get yes. through everything to get to the final. And I think maybe that's how well she'd be looking at it. I don't know. I think so. And that, I mean, there was a similar momentum, see, wasn't there? Because like England had gone down and they'd beaten New Zealand and they'd beaten We'd beaten everybody home and away in the two years leading up to it, yeah. Yeah, and so you've gone into it going, okay, well, it's, we're, we're, we're really good. You know, we're, we're really good and we should win And you won the Grand Slam, of course. And you won the Grand Slam. Finally. And in a funny way, it was their... Um, they almost butchered it. I mean, they, they, I mean, England were... I was so confident that England were going to win that the final, I couldn't... I remember watching it with... I was at uh, comedian Greg Davis's house and I was, we were watching it in the lounge and for the last 10 minutes of the 2003 World Cup final, I watched it from the doorway of the lounge for <laughs> no other reason other than I could only fix one eye on the TV. The other eye, I had, I had sort of squeezed past the doorway because I couldn't bear the idea that the Aussies were going to come back into it and they were going to win it. Because I I really wanted England to win. Because Did you it, really? It, yeah. Oh God, yeah. Because it was a Northern Hemisphere. It was a Northern Hemisphere result, and they deserved it, and they were the best team. And when when it's kind of credit where it's due for me that um, you know I love seeing Wales beating England. It, it really is probably the only game that really really gets me up because it's England, and that, and that's fantastic fun. But. That when you've cheered for Delalio and Martin Johnson and Matt Dawson playing for the Lions, and then they go and they face the Aussies in the World Cup final for the first time, a Northern Hemisphere side's got a chance of winning it. For me, it's like uh, you back you you've got to back England there, and it was brilliant to see them win. Yeah, it was a, and it's been absolutely probably mostly shit ever since, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the, so uh, yeah. Well, well, how would you explain? I mean, I'm fascinated. with with what you think's going on, just quickly with, with right Eddie. now or since two thousand three. Yeah, right now. <laughs> um, I think there is a. You mentioned Alan Wynne Jones and the leadership that he provides. I think that plus you have got a, quite a strong core of experienced Lions with Wales. I don't. I think there's a leadership problem with England in that. And right. What Eddie Jones said, and it's he was wrong. But if you look at it, we've got the same leadership group that we had in 2015. Right. We've got Farrell, right. we've got Launchbury, we've got Ben Youngs. You know, they're the ones who should be the kind of leadership group. Itoji yeah. wasn't playing. He's a quite a natural leader. Yeah. And I do think there is something about that group that doesn't do whatever Alan Wynne Jones does. Right. So there's that. that. Makes sense. And then I think that then there's a wider squad experience issue. I remember going into the last World Cup, I remember thinking, the players that we've got have got enough caps are not good enough, oh, and the ones that we and the ones and the ones that we don't have that are good enough haven't got enough caps. Aren't experienced enough. That's and I, really interesting. And I think as you go into this World Cup, I worry that the leadership group that now do have enough caps or should have are still not quite doing it. And I think that the the longer Hartley's away, the more valuable he seems, and it's and it starts to explain why. He was selected in the face of people who were playing better in lots of people's wow. opinions. That makes total sense. 
absolutely makes total sense because I'd have you, you would have picked um, what's his name thingy me Bob who plays hooker at the moment Jamie George yeah you'd have picked Jamie George you know off the back of the lines and all that you go well he's got to play he's miles better than Harley but it is yeah. that role it is that role that they bring of captaincy that clearly Harley is really good at when he's yeah. not poking people when in the yeah, eye indeed. biting people setting fire to things on the pitch <laughs> yeah <laughs> driving Land Rovers through the car park yes. over other people's cars you know, and, all that stuff. And all that kind of Leaving stuff. that aside, great leader, <laughs> great leader, great guy. Yeah. But he's clearly, yeah, clearly that role. He 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 mobilizes everybody. Wow, that's really interesting. So yeah, so we'll see. I don't know, but obviously, I said this on the pod last week. I'll just say it again quickly because the same people have listened to this probably. But um, um, the I, I still think there's more positives coming out of this year's tournament than la- than the entirety of last year for England. There's issues there, but we've shown yeah. enough to build on. I think we can just. The thing with Scott, we we lost it with Scott. I don't think I don't think it's because we had got a fragility thing. It's because we started taking the piss too early. Yeah, we got into a very comfortable position where we yeah. thought that Henry Slade back pass at the back of the hand after half an hour was a bit. Yeah. That's not a good sign. It's a good sign in a way that he's a very good player, but it's yeah. not a good sign in that you start to think that these are giving up now. Yeah, and, and yeah, you're going to yeah. grind him into the day. It didn't quite happen. So I think. No. And the thing is, you always learn. You know, you can do nothing but learn from this. So you hope that they will be learning something. Right then. Yeah, you 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 know because they are they are world class potentially the players. Yes, it's interesting. I think if everyone can start playing well, it should be a good World Cup. But um, so talking about you then, Chris. Yeah. I said you were born in South Wales. What? Let, let's get more specific then. Whereabouts in South Wales were you born oh. and raised? Well, I wasn't. You? I was born. I was born in Bristol. Oh, sorry. Right. No, no, that's okay. It's uh, it's something that my uh, granddad used to wind me up about because he was English. <laughs> he used to wind me up about for uh, until he died. <laughs> um, for for uh, all my life, um, because I grew up a. Um, do you want to get? Do you need to get that? No. Okay. Um, I grew up a uh, very very passionate Welshman. Yeah yeah yeah. So I was kind of I was about I was born born accidentally on the wrong side of the bridge as a result of my dad's job. My mum and dad are Welsh. And then um, Corker is yeah, an no, Irish name, though, isn't it? An Irish and is an Irish name. Yeah. So my so my dad's side's kind of Irish. Goes back sort of. Uh, Great, uh, grand, well, their great grandparents is kind of the right, Irish yeah. thing, and um, uh, yeah. So then, and then I grew up in Pontypridd, and I have no recollection of losing my English accent, but uh, somehow or other it happened, and then I got a Welsh one and grew up a uh, a very passionate. So, um, how old were you when you moved to Pontypridd? Pardon? How old were you when you moved to Pontypridd? Oh, I was about five, maybe oh, right, five okay. or six years old. So. Um, you know, kind of just just starting school, and I can remember my first day. At, I, I don't know if it was my first day, but I remember it as my first day. It was St David's Day, and um, I, so I, I just remember like all the kids walking around with what what I what, what were giant leaks, but they weren't; they were little kids. But walking around, <laughs> walking around with leaks on their jump, and I just remember thinking, "This is weird. What what's going on here? What's all this about?" And then uh, and daffodils and all of that, and then kind of and then singing about uh, Great St David, and then very very quickly just kind of got sucked into the whole thing, and it felt very natural that I was I was there. And of course, my dad was, you know, mum and dad were Welsh, so um, mm. I kind of uh, so you're Welsh, yeah, that really? was it. Yeah, you're yeah, Welsh, aren't you? Uh, pardon? You're Welsh, aren't you? Obviously, absolutely. I um, I when I moved to North Wales when I was twelve, and from Lancashire, and I never forget my first day going in and being told how to get some books. And I and I said to a lad in school, I said, I said, uh, where do you keep these books? 
<laughs> and, he, and, he, and he's because that's what the accent, my proper accent is like, because I'm, yeah. I'm from Lee, near Wigan. And um, and he was laughing his head off, and I couldn't work out why he was laughing his head off. He said, "There's some box over here." I said, "Oh, all right, okay." Sort of thing. Yeah, you know, nice and welcoming. So yeah, it was all right. So, did are you from a rugby family? Yeah, my dad uh, was rugby through and through. Yeah, so he played as a kid. Played, um, uh, got picked for Cardiff schools, hmm. and would take his boots down to Pontcana Fields, Landa Fields, and Not try well, and get yeah. games with whoever you know, whoever was short uh, that just needed someone to play. And so, and he took me to. Um, I kind of grew up with a split personality in a in a, in a weird way that. Um, I was both a Ponty fan and a Cardiff fan. Good um, Lord. You want an England yeah, to win a World Cup? You're a Ponty <laughs> fan and a Cardiff fan. You're, you're a, you're a, you're a, a mess. <laughs> Lee, when it comes to rugby, I'm a maverick. Um, so, yeah, because my dad was Cardiff. So my dad was Cardiff through and through. So he would take me to um, the Cardiff games. And that's what I fell in love with watching rugby. Um, and I grew up in Pontypridd and played for Ponty under fifteen, so Ponty schools. Mm. Uh, and so that, that I just remember the moment I, because at the time the jerseys were the same jerseys that the men's team wore. Uh, and did I they have just... "Buyers You View" written on the front? Or was that? Or was that, or was that <laughs> no. Brief? We did. We weren't sponsored. I imagine that we have some sort of TV rentals sponsorship on there. On I the knew front. nothing about what Buyers You View was at the time, and then you look back now, and it was the most disgraceful scheme ever created by anybody. We yeah, had to put went, money well, in the side of your telly to watch it, and he ended up paying like nine grand for a fucking fourteen-inch. Is portable. that what it was? Yeah, you put money like a fruit machine. Literally, Buyers You View. Yeah. Well, you can't. It was basically like the Bright House for the analog age, you know. Oh, wow. I, I never quite realised that because everyone rented their tellies in the valleys in the 80s. Oh, everyone rented no, their tellies not... full stop on your washing machine. What was that all about? Yeah. But uh, I didn't realise you put money into it. Yeah, it was literally... Oh, yeah. wow. Well, they didn't have that on the front, but I do no. remember kind of um, having... Just pulling that jersey on and, and feeling quite emotional because mm. I was super proud to have played Ponty Schools at, you know, under 15. So I was, so I was a, a proper kid, but it really felt like something. It was You're great. quite decent, though, because there's quite a lot of school kids playing rugby in Ponty Breathe, isn't there? There was, yeah. I'm, I'm super proud of that. Yeah, I think that's probably my, my, my highlight of my rugby career was at the age of 15. <laughs> and it was, it was playing for Ponty Schools. And we got, we got knocked out of the main cup in the first game or something. And then we went on and won the Shield. And playing at the brewery field was, uh, was, was amazing, beating Progenda. Marking someone who I remember was about six inches taller than me because I was playing in the second row at the time. And, uh, and, kind of, and then still sort of like holding my own. It was great. It was just fantastic. I loved it. So I, so I had a real split personality when I came to the rugby, um, both kind of like Ponty and, and Cardiff. But my dad used to take me to watch that amazing Cardiff team in the 80s that had um, Terry Holmes and mm. Gareth Davis. And uh, and then my all-time rugby hero Mark Ring, who was a magician. Oh, he's um, a ridiculous player. He's, he's ab- quite quite mad now, but he's a- <laughs> yeah, he's a proper character. That's for he's sure. a, he's very entertaining on Twitter. Yeah, he, he came he up with some brilliant rule changes last week that he thought should should fly. Did he? Did he? What what were they? Can oh, you I'm remember? trying to remember now. I'm really, you 
you're not allowed to do an end over end kick. You can only do a spiral kick, and you get a, it's like a penalty if you don't do a spiral kick. Oh, I like that because he no, says I people should that. be should be thinking outside the box and make the game more impressive. Yeah. Something about off the back of a line out four was not allowed to take a drive. Right. It was all like stuff to try and get the game more free flowing. But if you just applied even one like molecule of sense to how it's ref in a real time <laughs> scenario, it all just starts to fall away. You know, but he was but but bless him. Yeah. But he he really was a genius. And it's where I it's where and it's just the way he used to throw dummies and because I, I and so I loved I've kinda I kinda grew up with um with the sort of handle the handling potential of a number 10 and the athletic pace of of a of a sofa i mean i'll <laughs> or just i just i was not so i i ended up trying to make trying to play in the back row as much as i possibly could because i was trying to masquerade as a back but i just did not have any pay the only thing that changed in me when i tried to sprint was that my head pushed forward do you know what i mean i had no gas at all yeah um, i pl- i played um wing or centre in rugby league when I played. Yeah. I played that to start with, and I played that at uni. And I was exactly the same, an absolutely shocking and diabolical lack of pace, almost yeah. almost comedy level. So when yeah, I started playing so... when I started playing rugby union, I actually went into blindside because I thought, I can do this job. Yeah, there you go. And so we had a bit, you know, a bit more kind of like uh, a bit more longevity. But it was so frustrating because that's because I didn't have any power either. I was like I was I was kind of like the anti asset. I was a real wannabe. Well, like like forty, like fourteen, fifteen, I was okay because I was really, really fit because I'd been a swimmer, right? Uh, like a competitive swimmer at the kind of club level. But I was that meant that I was unbelievably fit, and so and I was strong enough for that age group. But then as I became an adult, it, it was became a, abundantly clear that I didn't have the pace or the power <laughs> to cope with this game but yet had the vision and the skills of maverick rugby player my hero mark ring and so i was kind of like everyone's i suppose i, I well thinking about it i don't know where i used to contribute on the pitch because <laughs> it's a very niche role yeah it's a very niche role yeah and must and one that must have only infuriated my teammates you but, could have uh, been i'm um, sure you could have been one of those number 10s that never runs just a, yes. an old school well, an old school pivot you know well, Gareth Reese from Canada was my hero. I thought I could do that. He just standing there, look. You I've know, told this story before. It. I saw him play against Cardiff when I first moved to Cardiff in 1998. Yeah. And he was properly the fattest thing I've ever seen. He looked about <laughs> six months pregnant. And he just didn't run at all. And I thought, fucking yeah. fair play to you, Gareth. Exactly, yeah. I, you know, or that Jan Molby type role mm. where you just sort of stand in the middle. Yeah, I was going to say Andy, Andy Good, but he's quick. So I mean I, I you know I just didn't didn't have Andy any Goode pace. Andy Good wasn't quick. Alex Good's pretty nippy. Andy Good. No, wasn't. Andy Good. Andy Andy Good looked like he should be really slow, but he, he had a, when he bothered, he, he had a real turn of pace, didn't he? Ooh, he I did. Don't know about he was that. maybe Over compared to you and me, Chris. Maybe that's what All right, we're doing. Well, he... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that reflects so badly on Andy Good. That really does him a disservice. I don't think there's anything that can reflect badly on Andy Good the way he, <laughs> the way he carries himself for the minute. But there you go. Um, so yeah, so you grew up, you played for Ponty schools. Did you did yeah. you continue playing for clubs up into your adult years when you were teaching and stuff? Uh, yes, I played for. Well, I went and played for Lanharan Youth. Mm-hmm. That was um, a lesson in survival uh, because they were maniacs, and I was all and I was a terrible, terrible fighter. I mean, just I mean, I would do everything to avoid it. 
something of, of like if a fight broke out, which not only did it's it amazing how game. much your rugby career sounds like mine. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm not interested in that. No, I'll tackle if you want, but I'm not interested in that. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's just pointless me getting involved, guys, because I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna help this situation. You know. So I will only help so if I... you if you hit people with me, as <laughs> yeah. a, like a club. That's that I could be useful to you. That's right. Or I could stand around like Reese Mogg's attitude to the working classes, kind of pointing and, and directing people <laughs> in, to fight each other, and then just sort of stand back and pass comments. I mean, I'd be I'd have been good at that. But um, yeah, I was terrible. So. I would do everything I can to avoid, and that was. But I, that was fantastic. I had a fabulous season. I really enjoyed that playing for Lanarin Youth. That was that was great fun. And then uh, adult rugby. I played for. Um, I went to university then. Played for like Swans University seconds, and that was fun. And then um, I went to do my teacher training. Went and did my teacher training in, uh, uh, and I was living in Bognor Regis. So I played for, made my debut for Bognor Regis fifths which was uh, a really fun... Actually, that's a, quite a, that's a good story as to uh, as an example of why I wasn't really built for rugby, actually, because we were playing Bognor Regis fifth, and I was fairly fit, and I was playing number eight, and I was sort of li- running around thinking I was, you know, Scott Cornell or Delalio, kind of like <laughs> bumping some people off and scoring the odd try, all in, the, all in the, this first game, you know. And then... The and I can't remember who we were playing, something like Hazelmere or, or you know, Hazelmere Force or something <laughs> like that, right? Uh, big glamour tie, whatever it was, yeah. It was a huge, huge game, yeah, <laughs> huge game. And um, and there was this little balding ginger guy playing flanker who must have been five foot six and about 13 stone. And I so I was leaping around enjoying myself, having a smashing game. In it was sun, it was summer, sun was out. I ran at this guy and I was like, and I ran it, it was a brick wall. I ran into a brick wall. I thought, oh, hang on a minute. That's, that's a bit random. <laughs> and me, he just caught me in a way. So it's like played on. And I sort of, next time I had the ball, I ran at him again. I thought, right, just make sure, I just need to check what happened last time by running at this guy. And I ran at him as hard as I could and kind of got my position right this time. Bang. Brick wall. <laughs> and I thought, Okay, there's something going on here. This this is a bit random because compared to the rest of the people who were playing for their team, uh, he this didn't make sense. And and he was kind of old as well. Like he was this really gra- kind of gravelly old guy. Anyway, um, I think I perhaps I ran into him once more during the game and he's like hitting a brick brick wall. And afterwards in the bar, I was chatting to one of their players. Oh, I wish I could remember. I wish he gave me a name, and I can't remember the name, but he did. He did say it. But and I said, I told him this story. I said, this this happened, and he went, Oh yeah, well he used to play for Bath, and and whoever it was had 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 a you know like twenty years earlier had played for Bath, and this guy was made of granite. <laughs> he was made of something that I wasn't made of. I was not made of the same stuff. So my adult rugby was was you know made up of just. Like avoiding fighting, um, trying not to run into old guys that have played at a higher level that were made of absolute stone, and uh, all the time trying to uh, sort of throw throw a dummy and and uh, do something mercurial. Um, and then I played for Lantabarja then as well, so my my home village, uh, which is Neil Jenkins's village. Mm. Um, so we uh, yeah played for Lantabarja sort of. Um, men's and really enjoy that as well it was that was fab that was, that was my rugby career Acast recommends 
Podcasts we love. Changemakers is a new podcast series with me, Claire McKenna, talking to people who stand up, speak out, or challenge us to think a little differently. It's about the greater good, families and children, respecting their own individuality. In the next couple of years, like I hope I never have to have conversations about racism ever again. Like, I just want to get to the stage where, you know, people are just people. Nobody's pooling the resources together and actually being able to show how much of an impact it will make when people do come together. Changemakers with Claire McKenna. Search for it now wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the world's best podcasts, including the David McWilliams podcast, I'm Grandmam, and the one you're listening to right now. So you um, like it a bit like friend of the pod, Mike Bubbins. Mm. You became a teacher. I did. He was a teacher. Took a strangely, slightly stranger route to it than you did, but he, he became a teacher. Um, but ended up a comedian. Yeah. So, what is it about teaching that makes people want to want to become comedians, or is it, or is it something else? Did you were you always funny? You one of those people in the club who can make people laugh? Well, that's the that's the strange. Uh, well, um, no, the funniest people in the in the rugby club. I wasn't funny at all. It, everyone else was. I mean, rugby club people are just really funny. Yes. And and some of the, I mean, just some of the funniest most. Just some of the times I've laughed the hardest have been in rugby clubs and amongst rugby people. So, no, not really. I, wa- I wasn't the kind of like uh, the funny guy in the rugby club. But I'd always kind of been, I'd always enjoyed a good laugh and then been able to make people laugh a bit, you know, like my mates at school and stuff. Um, and as far as teaching goes, I think it's maybe, to, uh, it's a bit similar. It's like, you know, you're stood in front of an audience a bit. So it's just that, like kids you need to educate um, and when you do stand up, you just, you know, you just, an audience need to make a laugh. But it's the same dynamic as kind of standing in front of people, I suppose. So, so but I, I never set out to be a stand up. See, I, I kind of left teaching wanting to script write. Ah, right, and, okay. um, and I just sort of fell into the, uh, the, the stand up. I just worked out. To a lot of people, uh, stand up seems like the most terrifying thing in the world to do. You have I know. to have an, an, you know, an, an all consuming desire to get out there because it's yeah. so utterly terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So it's always interesting when, because funny enough, Mike said the same. You went to go to a script writing course and ended up on a stand-up comedy course. And there you go. I there. did the same thing. Yeah. So there is something like that. So it is a bit like. So I suppose like, try to explain that a bit more. How do you uh, for people who can't really get their head around it? How do you end up accidentally being a stand-up, given well, that you've really <laughs> got to put yourself out there to do it? <laughs> That's a great setup. That's a great question. <laughs> How do you accidentally become a stand-up? Because that's pretty much um, what it what it was. I well, I met. I was introduced to Greg Davis before he was Greg Davis. Greg Davis so he was the very the, tall guy from the Inbetweeners and numerous yeah. other things, and Welsh comedian. Yeah, that's right. So we had a mutual friend. So someone I used to uh, train with when I was living in London uh, introduced, and I was kind of getting into script writing and making little kind of comedy clips and stuff with him, just for shits and giggles and, and having a, and having a laugh. Hmm. And um. And I was kind of coming out, I was sort of spending my weekends writing comedy sketches and sort of sending them off places and not getting anything away, but just kind of felt like it was it was there and I had stuff to kind of, ideas to write down, I suppose. Um, and then he introduced me, we were in the Clapham Grand and he said, I said, oh, I got one of my mates over there, he's just done stand-up course. And he'd gone, and it was Greg Davis, and he'd, Gone to, they'd gone to college together, so we just had a chat about it, and he said, you've got to do this course I've just done. He said, because um, 
the thing about the stand-up is it's the thing that goes the fastest. So you can kind of get out there into the comedy world, if you like, and go and meet people. Whereas writing, no one knows who the hell you are and no one gives mm. a shit. If you, have, if you haven't written anything or they don't know who you are, then no one really takes stuff unless, you know, if you're Ronnie Barker and you're a genius, fair enough, he'll probably stand on his own. <laughs> yes. But if you're not, um, then there's another way you need to do it. And so uh, so we just said, go and do this course, because i just done it with Rod Gilbert, and um, they were on the same course. So that's how they sat. So I was like, okay. So I went and did the next one. And it was like I'm a, sure a lot of people would be really surprised to know that these like really leading Welsh comedians, yourself, Mike, Greg, Rod yeah. Gilbert, all went on a course. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think and a lot of people must think you have, you, know, you have to be like Lenny Bruce and tortured and desperate and kind of then, you know, find yourself out there. Whereas of it's, yeah. it's interesting, isn't it? Since that people what? took a kind of a sort of adult, <laughs> yeah. um, was it further education college route to it, you know? I mean, don't get me wrong. There wasn't a PowerPoint, right? I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> we didn't sit around in a lecture theater, right? <laughs> being taught how to do it. It wasn't, it wasn't like that sort of course. Right. And it wasn't an exam. It, it was it was like a um, you know it was it was done done by a guy called Logan Murray who was um, uh, one of the one of the first like stand-ups paid stand-ups in, from the eighties really and it was all kind of improv and kind of performance stuff um, but yeah so so Greg did it Rod Gilbert did it Marek Lawa did it uh, Tom Rigglesworth did it they, they're all you know people who really came through and it was and it was just it, all it did really was it gave you the confidence to go and stand on stage. And not make a load of schoolboy errors, mm. um, but it didn't make you funny, if you like, or it didn't give you the confidence to do it, or it didn't. Do you know what I mean? So you have to sort of feel like oh, one of the best bits of advice Logan said was he said, "If you can feel like you can probably do it, then you probably can," right. because most people can't. And I think that's a really good bit of advice for anything, really. That if you think, "Oh, maybe I could have a go at that," I mean, sometimes you can be overconfident and then go and do something <laughs> and bugger it up, but. Um, if there's something in you that thinks, oh, I could have a crack at that, then uh, you pro- you sort of probably could. There's, some- there's something going on that you That's think. That's why there's about at. 9 billion podcasts created a day, you see? Yes. Because there's lots of people <laughs> go, I think I could have a crack at that. I could have a go at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah how, how, how could it be me and three mates having a chat? Sort of thing, yeah. So you ended up, so you was stand up where you got your hook into the writing then? Because obviously I mentioned at the top that you had this very well-received Edinburgh debut. Now, I know it's a rugby podcast, but I think people will be interested to know this. How how does Edinburgh work? You have to pay for a venue, don't you? It costs you money to do it. Is that right? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you go into debt. I mean, you just sort of take a punt and go into debt. I mean, I, I, I was working with an agent quite early that kind of booked it who had um, kind of bigger acts. So, you know, I was just sort of like tiny, small fight that, was going up but because they booked other acts then they they can book you a room and so that's how I sort of got my first room to go into Edinburgh mm. yeah but uh, but yeah it's really expensive and um exhausting and relentless and if you unless you do it the right way it can really sort of knock you for six it's um it's, it's yeah it's hard it's hard going it's hard going so you really so you really figure out if you want to do it after you've done that I guess I think so. Yeah, I think if you, yes, I mean you know doing thirty nights. Basically, if you do thirty nights and you've got a brilliant show, then it's the best thing in the world. And if you've got thirty nights and you've got an eighty percent show, it's just torture. It's hard work. And I so in so that first one I did was 
I mean, I was totally making it up as I was going along. There's lots of interaction. I shouldn't have gone. I wasn't prepared to go, but I kind of got away with it, and and it was, you know, it went, it went okay. Hmm. And then, um, and then I I took another. I did a tour of Wales of a, a stand-up show that was went really well. And then I took a version of that to Edinburgh that following year. And then it, I hadn't quite worked it around to be universal enough. It was a little bit too... It was a very Welsh audience-centric. It was yeah. very Welsh audience-centric, yeah. And so that was, I mean, you know, it was okay. But it, that, was a hard, that was hard work. That, that was, you know. Whereas when I went up with Ellis James and uh, Vern Griffiths and did our committee meeting show, which was the last time I went to Edinburgh, that was a total joy because you do, you're doing it with other people apart from anything else. And that made a difference. And, and the show was good which then takes the pressure off. And we were doing it at one in the afternoon, which was amazing because people aren't slammed and you're not exhausted. And it gave me time to go to the gym. It was just like, oh, and also to cope with the nerves as well. Because if you've got to get, this is why I stopped doing stand-up. A, a lot of the reason were, was because the nerves associated with performing. I thought I used to be quite good at handling nerves, but looking back, um, I don't think i mean i did it so i mean i didn't mm. capitulate but dealing with the process of having nerves uh looking back i found it really really hard and going into performances in the evening you know most of the time when you're doing the comedy clubs in the uk you're like the glee club in birmingham or the glee club in cardiff or the banana cabaret in in london i mean these were fantastic stand-up venues brilliantly run clubs and you'd have a wonderful time because stand-up when it's going well is intoxicating it is fantastic mm. but you would so most of the time you would have a good gig and then off the back of the gig you would feel relief and then maybe rather than feeling high you get relief it's like because you've done the job as good as you should have and then the relief lasts for a couple of hours and then you go and eat something unhealthy and then you get to bed about you know midnight or something at bus 12 and then for me the nerves would start then going into the into the evening the following day. And because it's like your job of work is in the evening, you've got all day to cope with going into... To mither about it, to mither yourself about it. Yeah, way. yeah, absolutely. So that's... Um, so when did you stop doing stand-up then? It's 2019 now, obviously. So when did, you're not well, doing it at all anymore. Stand-up, stand-up, no, not for about oh, six or seven years. I mean, I still do you know, host award ceremonies and, and do events and all that kind of stuff where you are being funny and you are, you know, yeah. essentially doing the same job, but it's slightly more, they're just different, they're d different environments. Friendly um, crowd generally. Um, yeah. If you do your homework and you kind of prep up a bit and then make it about them, it, it, you can have a lot of fun, you know, mm. but uh, so stand up, stand up, not for a long time. Yeah. Not for a long time. And you did, um, I remember I was living in Cardiff from 98 to 2004 Mm. And I remember you doing a lot of TV stuff around the Six Nations and TV yeah. stuff generally then. Um, and you got to interview a number of rugby players and stuff, didn't oh, you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were great fun. They were really, really fun shows to go as a rugby fan to get a chat. It was, it was kid at Christmas job, you know, to mm. go and get involved in interviewing your heroes and the big names and following the Six Nations and stuff. That was fantastic fun. I, I, I really it, enjoyed that. It's weird not being a... When I started doing the blog in 2007, um, it had been been going for about a year. It was moderately doing okay. 
and I got a phone call or an email came through saying, do you want to interview Keith Wood? Yeah. And I was like, is this a joke? Because I was just a bloke who wrote stuff on my kitchen table on a blog, the typical sort of way. And I got to interview Keith, well, only over the phone. And that, and that was the first proper interview I ever got given. And it was a kind of, that was amazing. I've it's done so a few, exciting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was genuinely exciting. I was still interviewing him kind of as a fan. And he was a genuinely lovely, accommodating guy. He gets a lot of shit, Keith Wood, for his punditry and stuff. But actually, he was actually really good. In that kind of environment, he was good value. And... um and it's funny. I mean, now I'm not. I'm a bit older now. I'm not. But I'm not that interested in in meeting players, and that's why the tone of what we do is the way it is, really. Because you know, it's almost like I'm trying to take that out of the equation in some ways. Right. Because they might say, "Well, he's a bit of a tit," you know, and that's fine. I don't mind. So it's so yeah. But I do remember what it was a bit like. What you just said that time when you first start meeting them. Oh, it's, it is. It is a bit. It is a bit mind blowing. It is, and I get. Um, it's really funny. I went to see. Um, uh, Monty Python in uh, when they did their tour a couple of years ago and in the green room backstage um, I remember being paralysed with being starstruck because oh, the, oh, on my left hand side was Michael Palin and Eric Idle then stood in front of me was Eddie Izzard and then over the other side it was like the guys from the Far show um, Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Hickson and, and then there was uh, I think Ruby Wax and um, and there was a, and then sort of a couple of others and I remember being unable to know where to turn or speak or know what to do because I was so starstruck by these people and the really funny thing was that um, I was told that uh, Charlie Charlie Hickson and, and, and Paul White, I think it was those two it might not have been but but the the people who were kind of like famous to us were starstruck by the Pythons. And Eddie Izzard was a bit like starstruck by the Pythons, and he was turning up every night to kind of like, wow, they they were his heroes. So there was like a hierarchy of being <laughs> starstruck. It was and like I, inception of heroes, three yes, levels. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah, yeah. Everyone had that little uh, twirly thing on the table just to kind of <laughs> make sure that it was in reality. But and I, and I felt the same with rugby players because I I was massively starstruck by rugby players. So to go and have the opportunity to meet people and then interview them was uh, just amazing. So to go to a press conference and then have a chance of interviewing, you know, sort of, we just uh, did a commando hit. I mean, we kind of, we had our passes, but we were genuinely going there without without interviews set up. So being able to interview Martin Johnson, um, who, you know, it was just fantastic. I was just probably, probably starstruck. And then when I got a chance to do, I tell you what, the, my, the, there was two highlights to, to those series for me. What, one was when there was a, a Wales training day in the stadium, and TV had put me in rugby kit. I know as they do, and, and <laughs> strapped my ears up and stuff. Right, so I was in like Welsh rugby kit, and it was like, oh, go on, Chris, you might get involved. It's like, well, can't, guys, you haven't thought a, you haven't thought this through, and b, they're not going to let me do this. this you should have seen what this ex bath bloke did to me. <laughs> At Bognor Regis one year. Please don't put me in there with them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If there was any any danger of that, I'd have probably had to have told him that story. But um, so they said, "Well, look, we'll we'll get you to do a line out." And I was like, "All right, I can do that." And so they had a line out with Gethin Jenkins and Adam Jones mm. and me jumping. Uh, now, in my day, right, you 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 went into the line out. And there was no lifting. So you stood like Bob Norster, which was kind of like with one leg leaning back and you sort of lean back on yourself, like Wade Dooley, you know. Oh, yeah. You lean, you lean back on yourself like that. 
and then you sort of leap forward or you leap up or you leap back. But you, what I didn't realise was rugby players these days just jump vertically and then get lifted in the air. So the first, the first time I, I did it, I jumped. I, I kicked Adam Jones in the bollocks, which was a and he, he, he was a total gent. He didn't even didn't even ref it. It's just as I landed, he said, "Listen, just jump straight up. We, we'll we'll just lift you up. Be fine." So I was like, "Okay, fine." So and he'd strapped my legs and everything. You know, they hadn't taken much bandage. It was like wrapping a chicken. But they, <laughs> so so they so the, they they threw the line out and they lifted me like they would lift a normal player and. I shit my pants <laughs> because now I'm six two, and so they lift, and they're about you know six foot each, and then they're lifting me above them, above their head. So their arms another two foot, so six eight. So I was about you know twelve or thirteen feet in the air by the time I'm catching the ball, and I it was I had vertigo. It was terrifying. Uh, and you have to remain completely straight and locked in position, otherwise absolutely. it all fucking falls apart. It's, yes, or, or you end up kicking one of the it's, it's greatest an, props of all time in the bollocks. Yeah, it's an under, it's an it's an underrated athletic skill jumping in a line out. Oh god! People no, accept absolutely. it because it just happens and you get lifted, yeah. but it's really there's something quite balletic about it actually. Oh, Lee, and when you think about how big these guys are and how high in the air they are, and that ground is as you know that doesn't get any softer. <laughs> they they are so high in the air. Anyway, so they chucked one up and I and I caught it and it was like this is unbelievable. This is the greatest thing. And I landed and they did another one and then they did right. We'll do one and I, they had a little word with each other. I'm sure that I might be making this up, but I remember it as this. Before the last one, they had a little word with each other mm. and I thought, okay, this is you know they're obviously uh, they're obviously impressed with my athleticism. <laughs> uh, maybe there's a chance that you know they need to get me into the squad. And um. And this time, the ball came in, they threw me up in the air, and they let go of me at the top Oof. for about, like, actually, just, just so they threw me up in the air, so I came out of their hands. What, like a toddler? Like a toddler. <laughs> so I must have been about, I don't know, I must have been out of their hands for about 0.4 of a second, uh, and I'd gone about two inches higher. But for, I was absolutely petrified. It was terrible, and I made an involuntary noise. I kind of was like, Whoa! <laughs> and then they caught me. They obviously caught me straight away and brought me back down and then sort of patted me on the head and was just like, yeah, you're not, you're not built for this. You're not built for this, are you? But they were such good sports. It was, it was, they were so brilliant. They were, it was, you know, and what a, I'll never forget that. It was just an unbelievable moment. And then on the same day, Rob Howley taught me how to pass a rugby ball. And that was immense. It was like, oh my God, Rob Howley has literally shown me how to pass a rugby ball. It was just so and cool. And I'm getting paid for this. And I'm getting paid for this. Yeah. <laughs> And, he, and the tip was to, to point, once you pick the ball up, you spin past it. And of course, because of my mercurial markering passing skills, I was pretty much there as it was, Lee, well, to be honest. Well, yes. Yeah. Uh, but then the key that I'd never realized, which was, he said, as you release the ball, you point to where you want it to go. And it was such a brilliant tip because from that point on, uh, it really makes a difference if you if you put because it re, it's really accurate. Mm. It blew my mind. And then what was really funny was I ran off the pitch. Then, you know, bear, bear in mind I look like I, you know a, sort of a potato on a pair of spaghetti legs. Like I just don't look. I guess I would have looked like a 1980s second row, right? But these days I didn't look like I should yeah. have been out on the all pitch the wrong them. form. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the, and there was public, and so there were all loads of kids in watching and stuff. And there were kids trying to get my autograph because I was in Welsh kit, and I was going. 
no, 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 you don't, you don't, understand. you don't, you don't want my order. And they were going, sign it, sign it, oi, boys, sign it, sign it. And I was like, oh, no. And I, to my shame, I think I signed one out of, I was stood next to Jamie Roberts signing autographs, having There'd tried to There were loads of people who the autograph book going, I don't know, who is this guy who played for Wales? Guy? I don't remember him at yeah. all. And they're looking it up on the internet for hours at a time. However, though, you said about being called into the squad, but a little known fact about you, perhaps, is that you have actually played rugby for Wales, haven't you? Or play touch. Yeah. Yes. So that's yeah, what I'm saying, yeah. yeah. So how does that come about then? Oh, well, that was, um, well, just having played for years in uh, Cardiff High School Old Boys back in the early 2000s, late 90s, maybe even. Um, we both played then... for the, we worked out we both played for the same rugby club. Yes, but that's we right. We think Cardiff it was at slightly boys. different times, I think. I think we must, must have just have missed each other because there's no way I wouldn't have remembered you. So. No, you'd have remembered the slow, fat guy with the I'd remember legs. the potato on chicken legs, yeah. yeah throw, and your handling throw, skills sound like they're impossible to right. forget. So Throwing dummies like Mark Green, you'd have gone, who the hell is that guy? <laughs> How's he playing in the twos? What the fuck's going on? Yeah, so. yeah he should be carrying the sponges. <laughs> um, yeah, so go on, yeah. So we both, high school old boys, yeah. Yeah, and so um, so the game just sort of took, uh, became more and more formal, really. So we've been part of the journey of it becoming a genuine international sport. Well, it was always a genuine it international sport. It used to be a big, in... Califax Globals were the first people to hold a big summer touch event, weren't they? At exactly. The club and stuff, yeah. Yeah, so we played in all of that, and then it just got bigger and bigger, and then we kind of learnt about it more and more, and uh, it was, and then realised that you can go and play in World Cups. So, went to Japan. Did you for... play for the Kiwi Dragons? They were always an amazing no. touch team. Yeah, I wasn't good enough to play with the Kiwi Dragons. <laughs> they they were the best. They were the best uh, touch team during that period. But then, what was brilliant was over about ten years, just the standard improved across the board. So then there was quite a few teams then that became good o- o- over that um, mm. chunk of time. And we, yeah, we went to World Cups. So I played in like we've been European champions. Um. For the so it kind of went. So we played one tournament where we went to Japan for the first time, uh, playing for the Open, and there were you can take a full squad of sixteen, right? Nine of us travelled. Do you have to fund all this yourself? Fund all it, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's all all amateur, and we went, uh, we went, <laughs> we went across, and we didn't really know what we were doing, so we were walking right into the lion's den because the Kiwis and the Aussies were unbelievable. You know, it's just, they are so good. Um, And we got there, quick story. So we got there and they had all sorts of, they had like coaches and physios and tents and... Proper size legs, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, sunscreen and I don't know. And and they, um, and we, there was nine of us that had traveled and, and, the longest conversation that we'd had about kit was whether we should have dragons on our socks. Do you know what I mean? It was like <laughs> that the level of preparation was fairly limited, but, but the brilliant thing was that we got to face a hacker. All right. Uh, so we, um, and it was amazing because we played, so it, t- it came, the New Zealand team had been doing a hacker before every game. So we were like, Oh my God, boys, we're going to face a hacker. This is going to be unbelievable. And, um, my my captain was one of my best mates, uh, called Julia Davis, who was from Kenfig Hill, 
he said he was like, "Oh, boys, we got it. This is unbelievable. It was, I can't believe it." He's, you know, when he's, he talks, but he talks quickly, like, "Oh, boys, 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 oh, boys, we're going to face a hacker. Oh my god, unbelievable! It's fantastic." You know, these sort of guys that sound like they got a lot to say, and then they you listen to them, and then it turns out they haven't actually got very much to say, but they like full of energy. You know, like, "Oh my god, really enthusiastic," and he was a fantastic touch player. So anyway, we're he in particular, but we are all really looking forward to facing this hacker. Um, but then it came to our turn to play the Kiwis, and they just lined up as if to start the game, not to do a hacker. So we were the first ones that they weren't going to do the hacker in front of, right? So we ran on the pitch, and we were lined up in front of them. And I think, really, for Julian, this had become the point of the tour. And he was, so he called us in, in a little group, and he said, boys, it doesn't look like they're going to do a hacker. Now, bear in mind, the referee stood in the middle with his whistle ready to start the game. <laughs> so we were like, you know, yeah. And he was like, we've got to face a hacker. So he, 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 I used to tell this story on stage. And, and the line going into this goes, then Julian Davis did something very Welsh. <laughs> that he, he said, right, we've got to face a hacker. There's only one thing for it. I'll go and ask. And he <laughs> ran across the pitch to the Kiwis. And he asked them, and then he came running back going, they're going to do it, they're going to do it. Was, yeah, they're going to do it. And then we all lined up, and they did it for us then. And they must and have been like, oh, for fuck's sake, all right. Yeah, it's like, all right, guys, come in, we'll do a hacker. But for us, it was like a spiritual moment, you know what I mean? We, we were all, they were really giving it some welly, and it was incredible to see it up close, because they, you know, every time Kiwis do a hacker, it doesn't matter whether, you know, schoolboys or men's, they're really giving it some, some gusto. And, and then we were all stood there going, oh, wow, isn't it amazing? Do you know what I mean? It's like a, it's like a, a really powerful war dance. And, and, and they were like, we were like, oh, my God, is it fanta- isn't it fantastic? Oh, it's amazing. We've, we've, just, we've just seen a hacker. It's fantastic. And then, um, and then we played them and we got absolutely blitzed. They absolutely <laughs> stuffed us like about, like about 19 nil or something. It was basically just like kick off and then they'd score and then kick off and then they'd score. And then at the end, we were like, thanks, guys, shaking hands and asking to swap shirts and stuff. It was just, it was just brilliant fun. When you say and that, was the, go on. That was, the, that was the introduction, really. So from that point of us not really knowing what the hell we were doing, we, the, the, the sport then really sort of like grew and grew and grew. And so we played age groups and all the way through. So like over 30s, over 35s, over 40s, uh, right the way through up until a couple of years ago, I stopped playing. So what... You said 19-0 there. How many points do you get for a try in touch? One. Now, there you go. That's I'm just confirming for that one. What <laughs> You said there he was an excellent touch player. Just because we don't talk about touch rugby much, just to finish on this. What what makes an excellent touch player? Um, well, you've got to have a body like a potato and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and pasta legs and uh, the mercurial ball handling skills of Mark Ring. There you no, go. What you need, you need to be super fit because it's so fat. It's basically like rolling subs. It's like rugby league. Hmm. So you've got rolling subs and, um, and, it's, and so it's really exhausting. And then you play like two or three games a day, 20-minute halves. Uh, so it's pretty brutal. So you just need to be really, really fit. And the quicker you are, the better, which is why I played on the wing. Paradoxically, you don't need to be that fast to be on the wing in, in touch. It's like the least, uh, the position where you're least vulnerable. Mm. But if you're playing across the, the park, yeah, kind of like the, the, the spring. Yeah. What you realise is this, they're, they're all, touch players are all spring. They're all about five foot nine, springy, athletic. They're all Jason types. Robinson, basically. Different, oh different variations of Jason Robinson. Uh, that would be the ideal touch player. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, or they're really tall, 
and skinny, so about 12 stone, but about six foot four, <laughs> so they can just dive in really well, you know. So, so you see the body shapes that, that play the game in, in the Southern Hemisphere. But it's, you know, Northern Hemisphere is doing really good now and um, getting better and better. And these things still, the, the Touch World Cup's still a thing, isn't it? It still goes on. And... Absolutely, and it, it is getting be- big, bigger and bigger and bigger, and it, they're all now streamed on uh, TV. So you get it over the internet. Um, the European champs are now screened. Uh, World Cups are all definitely screened, and it's such a brilliant sport. I mean, it's taken me to South Africa, Australia, uh, you know, France, Italy, Scotland, just um, playing all around the world. It was it's just wonderful. I'm really grateful for it. I bet you wish you're still teaching history in Hillingdon, though. Let's be honest. <laughs> uh, just off I the A40, you know. Uh, that's right. Yeah, the smell of the coffee from the Nestle factory. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Every morning driving up there, thinking, oh, it'd be great to just drive off and go and sit in the services and read a book. <laughs> but like, I got to, I got to get to the class. The bell's going to go at eight forty. So, Do you still uh, like history? Is there something you're interested in? Or are you teaching driving out here? Um. Truth is, no. I mean, I, I, I got, um, I got so much respect for Ellis James, who is a comedian and friend of mine, who is so well read, and I am so badly read when it comes to history. <laughs> it's probably like, best I, you stop teaching, then, isn't it? Really? <laughs> well, it, well, well, no. See, I was all right teaching because I, I was a good teacher, and as long as you're one or two lessons ahead of the kids, mm. then it's fine. The kids don't know, and so as long, you, you know, you, they're not losing out. It's just that I didn't have any knowledge, so I just didn't know anything. But if you prepare your lessons well enough, it looks like you know stuff. Isn't that a condemnation of the inspectorate data-driven <laughs> education that we live in? I don't know. No, I, I don't I think, know. I've got no idea about what he paid taking a piss. I think... Um, I actually took about not preparing yourself very well. I didn't do very well in my A-levels, and people don't believe me when I tell them this, and I do tell them this. My son's doing his A-levels now, and I'm talking about his work ethic. I completed A-level English literature without actually reading completely any of the books. <laughs> I treated all the books we were doing like a textbook, so I just like jump into pages <laughs> and try and read sections to see if they, that would get me through. It doesn't, kids, <laughs> as if any kids are listening to this. But yeah, it's I, a... I, I did A-level geography, and one of my geography teachers, they, they split the course between them. One of them was supposed to teach us a course on rainforests, and he said... Don't worry about it. It's all common sense, and he didn't. He didn't teach us it at all. I wouldn't even know how you'd think about what com- how common sense applies to rain. Unbelievable! Forests. Unbelievable! In, in the week, it rains in, exactly. A- yeah, and it's a forest. There's some trees, I guess. Maybe I don't know. But um, in the in the week going into the uh, our exam, he had a staple in year seven exams together. We hadn't done any revision, so I phoned up. I phoned up the other the other geography teacher who was really good the night before and I said listen uh so and so I can't I can't say his name no, on, fine, uh, yeah, on a yeah. podcast uh so and so hasn't taught us rainforest he just said it's common sense so my other <laughs> my, my other geography teacher said um all right look and he dictated an essay over the phone wow right? and I jotted it all down he said right learn that he said whatever the question is just Blend it around to that, and you'll be fine. Uh, I went in, wrote, wrote the essay, got an A. That reminds me of when I was at talking about some right stuff here. But when I was at uni, I did sociology, um, and I was into Marxism then, 
because yeah. I was 18 and, you know, my family were miners and power to yeah, the people. Yeah, well, fair enough. And all Coming that. back in a fashion. <laughs> so, and I remember every single module I did, there was always a question that was relate this module to Marxism. Yeah. So I essentially wrote the same essay, I think, for about three years. <laughs> you know, and no matter what the subject was, it was all caused by alienization, <laughs> alienation, basically. You know, that's yeah, what the root that's what the root of everything was because of the base <laughs> superstructure model of capitalism, you know. It is weird, isn't it, that? Because when I did my university degree, uh, I got a 2-2. I just scraped a 2-2. And the one paper that I got the most for, there was three questions I had to answer. One I knew, one I vaguely knew, and the other one I had no clue. I don't just mean, like, no, not much of a clue. No clue. So I made shit up. <laughs> I filled a page uh, with I can't even remember. It was Germany. It was it was all it was it was all about Germany, and um, and that was the one I got the, the highest mark in, like sixty two percent. And the others that I'd revised and learnt, I got like you know low two two. So to, so in the end, like scraped a scraped a two two. That's just bizarre, isn't it? It is. I don't know what any of that's got to do with rugby. Nothing at all, but you listen to this podcast and people who listen to it do know the tangents of what we're all about. So, Chris, that's been great. Thank you very much for your time. Really interesting rugby life you've had there, among other things. And um, we'll no doubt speak to you soon and maybe have you on again. Thanks very much. Oh, my pleasure. It's been an absolute joy. Leeds, good laugh. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to. Sports Social Podcast Network.